of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Had I the heavens embroidered cloths, inwrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half-light, I would spread the cloths under your feet. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly, because you tread on my dreams. Quotation there, famous quotation from the one and only William Butler Yeats. Yeah, our great national poet. I suppose I said I'd begin with Yeats because I'm going to talk about marriage. And often Catholic lectures on marriage, they can be very dry. Just endless quotations from documents and citations from the scriptures. A friend of mine in his first assignment, this is about 30 years ago, in a city in the north. He was visiting in a terraced house in quite a poor area. He was the new priest there and they still had the ethic among the priests of systematic visitation of houses, something that's become practically obsolete now. He, he was sitting in one house uh, having his umpteenth cup of tea and biscuit of the day and he was talking politely with the, the woman of the house who was extremely friendly and, and welcoming and warm and he said at one stage, as she was in mid-flow, and he, he interrupted at one stage and he said, um, how is Mr. Smith? Without breaking her stride, in the middle of her cup of tea, she answered, oh, never mind him, far. he's up in bed, the lazy blank. And it was a pretty bad word. <laughs> and he quoted afterwards as an example of a way in which a, a woman could ruthlessly sum up a man. <laughs> And at the same time, love him. A facility he thought was peculiar to women from his experience in the parish is, is that love for a woman is not blind. In fact, it's terrifyingly well-sighted. But love is love. And the same woman would probably have taken the head off your shoulders if you had said a word against her husband. But she had no illusions. He was as lazy as sin and she had no illusions about him. In the last podcast, I was talking about leadership. All these talks are under the heading of faith. I suppose in talking about leadership, I was talking about the way in which faith stirs out abroad, let's say. It walks abroad. It starts to make itself felt in social terms because faith won't stay at home. So today I was was hoping to look again at one of the most common ways, although it's far from a common thing, in which the lay vocation is expressed. Now, as we said the last day, it's not definitive to the lay state, marriage. It is not definitive of the lay state. You can be a lay person and not married. But it is typical of the lay state, which is a different thing. It is, one, it is probably the most common option of those who, who live the lay vocation and who choose to specify and particularise their general vocation in this way. And it is a remarkable thing to do. Now, you consider the leadership that I was talking about last week. It's achieved at the cost of very considerable vulnerability. Vulnerability is a beautiful word. It comes from the Latin vulnus, a wound. If somebody is vulnerable, they are woundable, touchable. And so every leader, the more he or she stretches themselves to achieve dominance, the more their soft underbelly is exposed to the tribe. Things can go very badly with a leader 
if they lose their touch. So that vulnerability never goes. I remember being told of a local politician in the west of Ireland who was absolutely, as we say in Mayo, poisoned. He was absolutely, his head was wrecked. The man couldn't go shopping uh, in, in the nearest city, but he would meet constituents who had voted for him and who considered themselves entitled to a lift home. And so he, he would end up having to having to leave at times that suited them, having to pick them up at certain places in the city, having to leave them off in their houses. He had no life. And there you see the cost of dominance, the cost of leadership. Is there anywhere that one can be more vulnerable than in marriage? Anywhere. Now here, here's the thing. Relating to God, you can say, oh, well, you know, posing yourself before God is the worst because the eye of God sees everything. Yes, but as as some French intellectual once said, sooner or later a man must kneel to something. Best to kneel to God. It's the least humiliating option. God will be merciful. Other human beings, you can take your chances. It might or it might not come off. But if you marry somebody, you expose yourself to them in a remarkable sense. Consider the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Three of those commandments relate to our relationship with God. The remaining seven are social. There are seven that deal with how we deal with other human beings. Dealing with God, difficult as it may be, is easier compared to dealing with other human beings. Chesterton, as, as Chesterton always was, Chesterton was very entertaining on this. And on marriage, on, on this whole thing of people relating to one another. In his day, it was very popular to go on safari to Africa. The, the empire was still there and it was a popular thing for wealthy people. And he commented, he didn't know for the life of him why people bothered going on safari for adventure. He said, I can never figure out why people say they're going to Africa for adventure. He said, going to Africa for adventure is ridiculous. If you want adventure, jump the fence and trample your neighbour's roses. Or he said, start an argument with the maid about religion. And that was a sly dig because a lot of the maids in London at the time would almost certainly have been Irish and they were Catholics. A lot of their employers were Protestants. So he was stirring the pot there a bit. He was being very mischievous. Start an argument with the maid about religion. And how many borders are you crossing there in late Victorian or what is it, Edwardian society at the time? The unknowability of other people. And in marriage, you take on one of these unknowable mysteries and you spread your dreams in front of their feet. And if you want to see how that can go wrong, check the divorce courts any day you want and watch the dreams get trampled on. I never officiate at a wedding. And remember, remember this, this is crucial. In a, in a Catholic wedding, and you can do a Catholic wedding in about five minutes, it, it's much longer because we've made a longer liturgy of it and also we've added in the nuptial mass. Our ancestors would not have had a nuptial mass. They couldn't have afforded it. They, they'd have had very brief weddings. It is the couple who confer the sacrament on each other. The priest does not confer that sacrament. For validity, he must be present or a deacon or a bishop. But he does not confer the sacrament. They confer it on each other. You remember the time the the referendum here in Ireland on marriage where they wanted to amend the constitution so that it would be possible for gay people to marry or to, to enter a contract which would be called marriage. And at the time a friend of mine made the joke, I think it was going around, oh he said let them marry, let them have it, let them be just as unhappy as the rest of us. 
And it, it was a good joke. He, he was happily married. I don't know how many jokes there are about marriage, one better than the next. The more jokes you see about something, the more absolutely crucial to life it is. People joke about it more because of its greatness. Sex, politics and religion. The topics that could not be discussed in polite society at the table because they always caused a row. But the very grist to the mill of the comedian. The ordinary life insofar as it's remotely ordinary of marriage. I am in awe when I officiate at a marriage. I am in awe when somebody takes their dreams, their whole person, and they spread it at the feet of somebody else. And they confect, as we say, they confect the sacrament. They make the marriage, the juridic act, by the exchange of consent. I do. That'll do it, in answer to the question. I do. And in one sweep, they have whipped off the magnificent cloak they were wearing of all their dreams, their experiences, their hopes, all the quirks of their personality, all their individuality and uniqueness. They have swept it off their shoulders and thrown it in the puddle at the feet of their beloved so that their feet will not be wet. That is what they have done. What a magnificent thing to do. What a crazy thing to do. It's true for some of the cynics. People who get married are a bit touched. They should be certified. They're crazy. They're cracked. They're nuts. Only crazy people do stuff like this. Only mad lunatics do stuff like this. Because what the state calls marriage now is anyone's guess. You know, at this stage. Well, certainly into the future, because legal precedents have been created which will be unstoppable. I don't know why the state bothers to involve itself at all in marriage. Everyone is always killed telling me the church should get out of marriage. Why should we get out of marriage? We actually believe in it. Let the state get out of marriage. Because the state doesn't know at this stage what it's doing there. It's not giving any decent preferential tax arrangements to married couples. It's not, it's not really making it hugely attractive for people to marry. It doesn't allow that this has a major role to play anymore. Let it go. Let the state get out of it. And, and, and let marriage become a genuinely private thing if that's what they want. And Catholics will have Catholic marriage, will have holy matrimony. The church did not invent marriage. It is of the natural law. It regulates it for its members. There is no more beautiful way, in some ways. Um, well, there are very few more beautiful ways, probably only one, the priesthood. And that's not to down marriage. That's just because the priesthood is just incredible. It is an incredible way, one of the supreme ways of following our dust-covered carpenter from Nazareth. And marriage will take you through Galilee. It will take you through triumph. In marriage, you will enter Jerusalem on the, on the back of a donkey with people shouting Hosanna and waving palm fronds. Marriage will take you before Pilate. Marriage will take you to Golgotha. Marriage will take you to the cross. Marriage will take you to the tomb and the resurrection. To commit your life to somebody like that, to leave yourself vulnerable to somebody like that, is it, it takes you right into the heart of what it is to be a created being, to be a follower of God, a follower of Jesus Christ to be redeemed and adopted into the life of the Trinity. is that terrifying vulnerability which God shares with us and expresses on the cross. That woundability. Because you consider what happens in marriage. 
Tom Wolfe, the American writer in his book The Bonfire of the Vanities. Now, you may find this a bit, re- bit repulsive, but it's still a, it's a very sharp story. But he, he tells a story of this, this couple at marriage counselling. It's back in the 80s. And uh, there was a fad at the time, you know, you tell everyone exactly what you think of them. And of course, if we start telling everybody that, the result will be social chaos. From a very young age, we learn with incredible adroitness to manage the bog, the quicksand that is social relationships, by an economy of the truth. <laughs> so, I don't know, your, your wife gets a new hat and you think it looks like a, a badger's backside in a high wind. But that's not what you say to her, because that's a way to end up in accident and emergency. So that's not what you say to her. You, you present the truth in a more beautiful way. I'm not saying you lie. Your husband, he does something, you know, around the house and, and uh, that he thinks is incredibly useful. And, you know, he's made a complete hash of it. And if he had called the plumber or the carpenter, as you suggested, it would be much better. But he is your husband. And you love him most of the time. So you don't tell him that he's made a hash of it. And so on. We manage each other all the time. We manage the truth. The truth is a knife. The truth is a samurai sword. The truth would cut a butterfly in two if it landed on it. The truth is terrifying. So people say, oh, oh no, don't be afraid, tell the truth. What the hell are you talking about? Don't be afraid, tell the truth. Be very afraid and still tell the truth. Have some respect for, for goodness sake. Do you know anything about life? The truth is frequently terrifying. And so one of the great skills is not to lie and yet be careful with it. You're handling, handling nitroglycerin. That's why it's so dangerous when people have a few on them. You know, they get tanked up, they have a few on them. And, they, and all this drinking at home that, has, that was, it used to happen in Ireland and now it has become fashionable. It makes family life so dangerous because again in marriage you leave yourself so vulnerable. And where, as usual, I've forgotten my story, Tom Wolfe. He tells the story about the couple of marriage counsellor. So you tell the truth, right? You tell absolutely. So he has to tell something about her that really annoys him. And she has to tell something about him that really annoys him. So at this stage, both of them are quite hurt. So I mean, this is a really dangerous thing to do. I, I don't think they do this kind of thing anymore. I don't know. But I mean, it's deadly. So she says to the husband, well, she said... Oh, this is pure genius. Well, she said, one thing that has annoyed me about you all the time we've been married is you're a very stylish man, you're very well dressed, all the rest of it, but, you know, you, when you go to the loo, I don't think you know how to clean yourself properly. And sometimes there's a bit of a smell. It's a dead silence. And he thinks, I've been there at those receptions. He's a very wealthy businessman in a $5,000 suit with expensive aftershave talking to all of these people and she's telling me I smelled of poo. Now what's he going to do? This is the chapter of faults. He's going to come up with something that will wound even worse. And how can they do this? Because they have shared their life intimately. Now as a celibate looking in, I am in awe of this. You marry somebody, you share your life with them. They come to know all your foibles. They come to know the way your face works. They come to be able to read your face. You can't even lie decently. (laughs) 
I don't know, do you remember that film The War of the Roses with Michael Douglas? And, oh, jeez, it was excellent. But it, oh, it was searing. But what drives her crazy is the, the stupid look on his face when he's enjoying his food. So I mean, the guy can't enjoy a piece of steak. <laughs> and she's seeing this. <laughs> and of course, in the beginning, she loved him and she loved the stupid look on his face when he was having a bit of steak. Now, it's another knife to take out of the block to carve them up. They're, they've gone from disillusionment and the death of love to hate. And how do you wound somebody most? You ruffle about in the little details of their life as you've come to know it. And you will find any number of sharp objects. Like the old look on his face when he's asleep. And he snores. And he tells stupid stories and the same old joke all the time and that kind of... He laughs at his own jokes. And he left stuff on her, but uh, all right, get me for sexism here. I think women are better at this. Men are blunt instruments. <laughs> I don't know if we're great at this. <laughs> they know what dishes each other likes. They know how, how, how the other person eats, how, how they sleep. For God's sake, they even hear them going to the loo. And you can say, oh, that's all rubbish. Or who's interested in that? Oh, that's like a contract. Contracts don't matter until you have a row. If you're working in a company, nobody looks at the contract until you have a row. <laughs> then every little full stop in capital letter is parsed. In the same way, marriage, lovable, laughable at worst. Not if there's a row. Then every hurtful little detail, every miserable, even repulsive little detail, nasty little things you know about somebody. They might have a tendency to be mean. They might have a tendency to lie. They'll almost certainly, man or woman, they'll have told you things about their past. You have all this stuff on them. Oh boy. A friend of mine, good lawyer, he chucked in family law and moved to criminal because family law was too upsetting. He moved to criminal law because it didn't take as much out of him. He said he could not stand any longer what he was being asked to do to people. It is an incredible vocation. And I think the most incredible thing about marriage, you could talk about marriage for six weeks and you wouldn't have exhausted. The most incredible thing about marriage is that vulnerability. It is the way you spread the cloths under the feet of the other and they can do what they like with it. That is incredible. The problem with these prenuptial agreements, the problem with all of this, and I always say this at weddings, we are the true romantics. You may discover later that the person you have married likes to eat with their mouth open. They may have any number of disgusting or repulsive or tiresome little habits. We are the true romantics. No prenups. You leave nothing for the way back. You burn your boats and you turn your face from the sea. The life you had before, you turn your back on it. And now this new life with this person. And it will only work if you do that. I'm all for the extended family, totally for the extended family. But the relationship of husband and wife is sacred. It is holy ground. And there is a curse attached to those who meddle. It's a different thing to give support. It's a different thing to give advice when it's asked for. Even when it's not asked for in desperate circumstances to a friend or a, or a close relation. And you may get told to go to hell, but that's the chance you take. But it's holy ground. You tread on that ground with dread. You be really careful. Common knowledge, common ordinary wisdom among priests is never get between a husband and wife. You don't know what's going on there.
It's a mystery. They're not even sure what's going on there. Never mind you. And they have a map. You've no map. What a remarkable vocation. And they become, in our beliefs, they become one flesh. Matthew 19, one flesh. Yet they retain their individual wills. They abandon their lives to the other. I heard a Protestant pastor put it brilliantly on one show in America. I really enjoy, I enjoy especially some of the African-American pastors. My God, the grasp they have of oratory. They're tremendous speakers. They're, they're just wonderful. But he said, I'm sick and tired of people saying, you know, oh, we got married to, to be a support to each other, to love each other. He said, sure, you did all of that. But he said, you also got married to drive each other crazy. How can any marriage work, he said. He said, you're a man and she's a woman. How can that work? The answer is, it doesn't work. You make it work. You, you bring God into it and he helps you to make it work. But you are two radically different ways of looking at things. And, and he said, as iron sharpeneth iron, so the couple drive each other daft. A friend of mine talked about when there were visitors coming, suddenly she'd go mad tidying the house, baking a cake and doing a hundred other things at the same time. Her husband, trying to help, would immediately go and try to tidy up his fishing locker. As if that was any contribution. <laughs> but it seemed a good idea to him. It's this difference that marriage brings together. And here we come to a very, very contentious point. The scandal of marriage partakes of the scandal of Christianity. It is the scandal of particularity. It is that God created a concrete universe. He created a concrete world. He created everything that lives on this world. He elected, he elected, he elected. He chose, chose, chose. He created man, he created woman, he gave them dominance over all creation, stewardship over all creation, the right to name all creation. Consider the power of that right to the ancient mind, the right to name something. In the great covenant with Noah, and even in the great covenant with Abraham, he promised salvation to the nations, to all people. And then gradually the covenant centers and narrows and it settles on Israel. On this one fractious, disobedient, awkward little people, brilliant little people. And then gradually, if you're a Christian, it narrows and narrows and narrows like a laser. And it focuses on this one Jew. This one Jew. And the whole of history, which is centred in on this fractious little people, this brilliant little people, has centred in on one of them who was unacceptable to his own people. One of them. The stone that the builders rejected. This one Jew. That is the scandal of particularity. And so a man and a woman choose each other out of all the possibilities. In a godlike choice. They elect each other. They call out each other. To stand in that incredible place, that terrible place, before the priest or the deacon or the bishop. And to command their presence to command the priest's presence that he may witness the mighty deed they are about to do, by God's grace. We do not beck an inch on the romance of marriage, even among all the sordid, everyday details that can make up an ordinary human life. 
the workaday details, even the sordid details of life. We do not back an inch on the romance. And there is no romance without the absolute. This man takes this woman. This woman takes this man. Not others. For life. Which is all we demonstrably, verifiably have. It is all the hard currency we possess. And you take that life in faith and you throw it at the feet of another. Faith in God, faith in him or her. And you go before one who is radically different from you. Not the same. So it is marriage between man and one. And it goes into the very heart of the mystery of being human. Is that openness towards other. Which partakes in our openness towards God. The ultimate of. And as Fulton Sheen said, it's three to get married, isn't that what he said? Man, the woman, God. God always present. And to make it even more romantic, marriage is not forever. Marriage is for this life. It is a crucial decision as to how you will live out your vocation in this life. It is ended by death. It is a school of the love of God and an anticipation of the sociology of heaven. The interplay of creatures with each other, loving each other in the love of God, in the spirit, in the life of the Trinity. You know, if you go back to Aquinas, you go back to Greek philosophy, uh, Aristotle, you, you, you think of, of the, the concept of the telos, of the, the goal, the point of a thing, of an action. It's, its object, its goal irradiates the whole process of arriving at that point with hope and meaning it makes of it a living and united thing. So the journey becomes, in a sense, almost a foretaste or anticipation of the kingdom. The journey into the kingdom, towards the kingdom. Because the kingdom is a living thing. The kingdom is like the sun. It warms everything that comes towards it. If a marriage is not a tropism like that, if a marriage does not turn towards the sun, if a marriage does not turn towards God, if it is not oriented towards God, it is still marriage because marriage is of the natural law. But it is hamstrung. It is a half thing, a ruined temple. It is not what it could have been, the entirety of what it should be. If God is not invited into it, if God is not called upon to witness it, if God is not present in it. When I was a kid, a common, a common present to a married couple, how people would laugh at this now. They'd die laughing at this now. Common present to a married couple was a, f a set of fine rosary beads. For the man, they would be black or dark brown, one of the masculine colours, so to speak. And for the woman, perhaps a lighter colour, perhaps a light blue or, or whatever. Maybe mother of pearl. Really, they could be as elegant or as costly as you're willing to spend. I've heard of silver and ebony. It was a common present. I remember, clearly, because they were working out the presents. And I remember saying, oh, no, well, not that, because, he, you know, she's getting them the rosary bits. And they'd be blessed, especially maybe a knock or somewhere like that. A friend of mine who's now dead, she remembered when young couples herself included, they were going to dances in Lewisburg. She said it was unthinkable that you go into a pub. You know, it was just not done. They'd go down to the church and they'd make the stations of the cross holding hands. <laughs> so she said you, you'd see sweethearts make the stations of the cross together. 
I know it is. People would die laughing at that, some of them. And they would say, oh, how naive. How... Well, I would answer back, how very realistic. How very Christian. Because if you want to see what there was to play for, look at a good marriage, 50 years on. If you want to see what there was to fear, the divorce courts on any day will give you a sight of it. I spent a good while in education, in chaplaincy, some teaching, uh, principal. And I'm not saying this to get at anybody, I certainly am not. Or to be mean or to be nasty. But an awful, an awful lot of very serious problems that students had were related to the breakdown of their parents' marriages. Or to dysfunction in the relationship. I remember a young man telling me that if his parents were getting on, he slept like a baby. And if they were fighting, he couldn't sleep. It's a perfectly re a reasonable emotional response to chaos. The presence of chaos in life. One of the crucial things in marriage is the vulnerability which you display in it. And I cannot emphasise too strongly, finish what you have begun. As is said by the bishop, I've quoted this before to the priest when he's ordained, may God who has begun the good work in you bring it to his own fulfilment. Finish what you have begun. Don't turn back. You've put your hand to the plough. Don't turn back. Finish it to the end. Even if you drive each other crazy. Even if you've quite repulsive habits that are infuriating the other person. Even if he chews with his mouth open or whatever it is. I remember one evening on a bus seeing a woman and she was on the phone and she was conducting the conversation. It could be heard by the entire bus and her husband was sitting beside her and he was clearly mortified and it was a quirk of personality she had never addressed and maybe he hadn't the courage to say it to her. But her entire conversation was entertaining the bus and her conversation was about their attendance at their son's graduation that day and he had to sit there well, the entire bus listened to this. Marriage is no joke. You think the stuff I'm talking about, that they're small and they're petty and they're repulsive. Or we live our lives in a mosaic of details. That stuff can drive you cracked. It can slowly drive you mad. It's like Chinese water torture. Remember Therese of Lisieux? What was one of the things that drove her cracked? It was that old nun who had the big bicycle chain of her rosary beads and she was rattling it off the stalls. Because she was very devout, as she said her rosary. But Therese put up with it. Now you have to decide in a marriage whether you should put up with it, whether you should correct it, whether you should bring it to somebody's attention, or whether it will cause too much harm. It could be something quite small and it could be devastating. Remember your man in the Tom Wolfe story? <laughs> in one stroke she has ruined every memory he has of every party he ever attended. <laughs> genius. Absolute emotional genius. She's absolutely wounded the guy with just a, one sordid little detail of life. This is the kind of power you get in marriage and it's the kind of vulnerability you display. Your power comes from the vulnerability of the other. So on the one hand, two people in marriage are tremendously vulnerable and tremendously powerful at one and the same time. A few years of marriage will give them that kind of power. It's a remarkable vocation. I quote St. Augustine, what are we looking forward to? What's the point of this? Where are we going? This sharing of these details of life. We are going forward to what Augustine called the city of God. De Civitate Dei, concerning the city of God, one of his great works. This is quoted in the Catechism. 
There we shall rest and see, we shall see and love, we shall love and praise. Behold what will be at the end without end. For what other end do we have, if not to reach the kingdom which has no end, unlike marriage? Now the church has always traditionally talked about the goods of marriage. And I mean good in the sense, the legal sense of a bonum in Roman law, a good like a piece of property or land. What are the goods of marriage? Well, Augustine lists three of them. And traditionally, Augustine's listing was very prestigious. Permanence, fidelity, and what he called the bonum prolis. Comes up a lot in canon law and church law. The bonum prolis, the good of offspring, the good of children. The first one is permanence. It's, it's the romance. This is for good. This is for life. When we say for good, we mean for life. This is for good. Only God can say beyond that. We can say, I want to be with God forever, but we don't get to commit in that sense without God's help. This is for good. This is for life. Fidelity. It's exclusive. Now that's huge because you consider you may have fallen hopelessly in love with that girl. You may have fallen madly in love with that young man and they were beautiful or handsome and they were in the full of the thing. What if they lose their health? What if they lose their looks? What if they become decrepit? What if they become disgusting? I've seen people stick by each other through thick and thin right to the end. I've seen people get rid of the other because they can't take it. Simply can't take it anymore. They've still got some of their youth. They want to go out in the town and find somebody while there's still time. I mean, this is the stuff. This is real drama. It may not seem like it, but it is. The choices that are involved down the road can be incredible. And one way or another, both parties will age. Women complain that men have a very, very unfair advantage in that they say a woman loses her looks, but a man only becomes more distinguished as he gets older. Well, my answer to that is if he keeps a full head of hair, <laughs> he said bitterly. <laughs> you know, that senatorial white mane. Yes, it can look quite distinguished. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But again, you know what I'm talking about here. And the commitment is permanent. It's for good. And then you come back to me and you say, well, what if one side betrays the other? No, that doesn't make the marriage invalid. That's heartbreaking. But it doesn't make the marriage invalid. There's something I want to come to here because the marriage could be made invalid by unfaithfulness, but it's not that simple. And then offspring, children. And you might say, well, that, that doesn't make marriage romantic. That's absolute nonsense. There is nothing more romantic than the terrifying openness to the future. That is vulnerability. I remember a friend of mine who used to complain openly. I used to always admire his honesty, even as I was shocked by his attitude. I never had a penny since I have kids. I'd never get married again if I was a young man. I wouldn't recommend to any young man to get married. You're always broke. Kids are always looking for money. They cost a fortune. It's ridiculous. I'm sorry I ever did it. I must say I admired his honesty. <laughs> it's about all you're going for him. My God, what a hopeless father. But it comes at a very high price in worldly terms. These things are so crucial that the church says if they are missing, the marriage is null and void ab initio from the beginning, if they're excluded. So here's the deal. If you go into a marriage and privately you have made a reservation, you have said, I don't intend this marriage to be permanent and I'll get out of it if it suits me. And if there's proof of that, 
like let's say a prenuptial agreement or stuff like that, you can take this to the courts, to the church courts, and they may declare the marriage null and void. And people are often saying, oh, nullity is only Catholic divorce. No, it's not Catholic divorce. Divorce is the splitting up of a relationship which may be perfectly valid before the law. Nullity is a statement that the marriage never happened. And people have a perfect right to go to the church and say, I was duped, I was coddled. Or go to the church and say, I cheated from the beginning. I never meant to have a permanent marriage. I always meant to get a divorce if it didn't work out. And I talked about this openly and these people can witness to those conversations which predate the marriage. I'm sorry, but you can take that case to the canonical courts and you're perfectly entitled to do it. Similarly with fidelity. You can say, I never meant to, to be faithful. I never meant, I played the field and I meant to keep playing the field. And I always meant to. I remember one, in one case, because I was trained as a canon lawyer, in one case it was so cut and dried because the wife was able to produce a, a remarkable cache of love letters belonging to her husband, which she had found going back to well before they were married, which not only demonstrated, I would say, an incapacity on his part to be faithful anyway, but certainly an absolute determination that he wasn't going to be faithful to anyone. Oh, it was absolutely unbelievable. There were a whole load of letters that proved to be on the case. It was a doddle of a judgment to write, I remember. All you had to do was just number the letters and just keep citing the documentary evidence. It was hanging evidence. The guy had the notion of being faithful. I don't think he could be faithful. But that would be another ground which we won't go into here. He had no notion of being faithful. And thirdly, offspring. If you go into a marriage determined to have no children, the marriage is invalid. And you can take that to a church court. Now, you need to be able to prove it. But again, if I mean, if you've discussed these things beforehand and the couple have married deciding not to have children, it's invalid. It may seem unfair, but that's the way it is. It's invalid. We regard those things as constitutive to marriage. They are part of the genuine romance that is marriage. And the romance comes from the absolute, from the presence of God, from the presence of his immutable commandments, and his immutable will. You said the words, and by saying the words, you set in train effects which weren't only judicial and legal, but they were also sacramental and sacred. And they were said in the presence of God. Now the Catechism simplifies the thing down into two. You have the good of the spouses, and you have the good of the children. The good of the spouses basically will take in permanence and fidelity, but also more because it takes account more of modern psychology and all that. I mean, if you go into marriage determined to treat somebody else like dirt, the marriage may be null, if that can be proven. And often it can be proven. Somebody who goes into a marriage, to, you know, going to treat somebody like that generally has a catalogue of relationships in which they've done that. I mean, it is genuinely frightening what people do to each other. John B. Cain isn't a great writer, although I always say greatness flashes out of his writing. There is greatness in his writing. He has a scene, I think it could be Letters of an Irish Matchmaker, in which they, the couple are sitting either side of the fire and one of them says to the other, and there's a storm and rain outside and the, the cottage is cosy and warm and they're sitting either side of the fire and one of them says to the other, isn't it grand for us? And I think that probably sums up the good of the spouses. Isn't it grand for us? That feeling of well-being, of contentment, of love, of a shared life, of a shared fire. 
very primitive stuff there. They shared fire. I was told by an Eccle man once, although I don't think this is peculiar to Eccle, he thought it was. Maybe it is. Is that a, an Eccle proposal of marriage? Have you heard of this? An Eccle proposal of marriage. Would you like to be buried with my people? Now that's literal. Again, when I was a small boy serving, when I was serving funerals, you were standing there at the graveside, the coffin was lowered down and bags of bones were lowered down beside the coffin. They had taken up the bones of everyone who was there before and they put them down with the new coffin. You were buried literally with a people. I remember looking across as the canon was reading the prayers, looking across and seeing a jawbone complete with teeth sticking out of the earth which they'd missed. <laughs> it was like something out of Shakespeare, like. And you'd see it at country churchyards right through these islands, I'd say. People didn't turn a hair. That was part of life. Would you like to be buried with my people? That sharing of the, of the basics of fire and water with the implied sharing of secrets, sharing of, of lives that creates such power and such strength that it can warm the children right into their own adulthood, their own parenting, or the damage from it can spread. It is absolutely crucial what happens in a marriage. It is an anticipation, as I've said before, of the sociology of heaven, of the heavenly city of the New Jerusalem. It is a school of love. And love is not something airy-fairy. Go away out of that. Love's not airy-fairy when it means you end up taking the person that was so dashing and so beautiful and so attractive, so erotically attractive when you married them, and you end up having to help them onto the toilet and wipe their backside and put them to bed. I'm sorry for going into the details, but either we name this or we back from it. Either we're afraid of life or we just take it. We take it as it is. Don't go on to me about love if you're not willing to drain the cup to the dregs. And remember that image that our Lord Jesus Christ used of draining the cup to the dregs. People in those days had their own wine. It was homemade wine. And there'd be a load of gunge in the bottom of your cup. Dregs were a normal part of drinking wine. You left them behind. You didn't drain them. To drain the cup to the dregs or that something was good to the dregs, it was so good you let the dregs back. That's marriage. That's Catholic marriage. That's kind of, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go on even about marriage anymore. I'm going to say Catholic marriage. I'm not going to go on about Christian marriage either, because I'm sorry, there's huge variety there, and some of our separated brothers and sisters have, they have sold the path. Some of them haven't, my goodness they haven't. They've put up a better fight than we have, but some of them have just sold the path. A valid marriage, if it's valid, no force or fear, no deception, no fraud, right? If it's a genuine thing, if it's Catholic marriage between two couple, it is for life. It is between man and woman. Here we have the scandal of particularity, like God choosing Israel, like God sending Jesus, this one Jew. So it is between man and woman, those two concrete and real different others ways of expressing life, and it is this man, this woman, for life. That makes it incredibly, incredibly romantic. As I said, I never officiated a wedding without awe. I feel I'm standing in a terrible place before the mystery when I officiate at a wedding. 
And when I basically see two people leave themselves without skin in each other's presence. Talk about having skin in the game. Without skin. That raw in each other's presence. And it is the gateway of life itself. They create through that vulnerability. And that's true even if a couple can't have kids. But they were open to it. It doesn't matter. And if they adopt, adoption in itself is not the same as biological procreation, but it is procreation in a sense. Because the influence that you will have on the, the, the home you provide for them, the influence you'll have over them, is, is absolutely huge. It is that openness to the other, that openness towards the future that is so profoundly Christian. And it reflects the relentless, the divine ruthlessness of God, if you like that loving ruthlessness, that choosing. And that again of Jesus choosing the apostles, follow me, that choosing. You know, the, you know that, that saying? It's a great saying. The graveyards are full of indispensable people. It's, it's a saying meant to shake people up and get them to live their lives. The graveyards are full of strong people whose strength was the strength of the world. And the strength that the world reveres and, you know, a strong will, a strong purpose, everything. And it went the way of all flesh, that strength. And it went the way of the world. And you could say back to me tartly, all the graveyards are full of Christians as well. And I say, yes, they are. And that is where the true romance of Christianity is. We hang everything on his word. We look ridiculous because having lived this life, we get buried just like you, who didn't believe and who rejected him and went your own way and live by your own will. We hang everything on his word. Again, I have to be careful here. I say marriage, but sure, what the state means by marriage now, we don't, I mean, you can't be sure. Even the state can't be sure, because as I said, it can't control now what the development of the legal precedence it has created. But we know what we mean by marriage. You go into this burning fire, into this crucible that is marriage. You go from chaos to new creation, you create a new life, a life together. And it's not strength as the world sees it, it is the strength of God. You throw yourself at each other's feet. And here's the crucial thing. You can say, oh, the church has just sanctified the tendency of people to live for their children. But the church tells you, you should not live for your children. You should be devoted to your children. Your children are an indispensable part of your marriage if you're gifted with children. In the words of one Luigi Giussani, the founder of Communion and Liberation, Comunione Liberazione, a great uh, Italian uh, university movement, Catholic movement, you are not simply compost for the next generation. Those two and the value of what they have done in their lives, it doesn't just pass just because they pass on and they're buried. and. And nice stories are told about them 50 years later at get-togethers and families and that. They live on forever. They have guaranteed their own lives in the city of God by abandoning their lives. For he that try to save his life, even shall he lose it. But he that loseth his life for my sake, so shall he save. You have to let go. You have to abandon. You have to say, I do. In whatever way you do it. In marriage, they do it to each other. They throw it away in front of each other. And they see Christ in the face of the other. And so a Christian graveyard is full of people who threw their lives away. 
the greatest thing that you can say about a Catholic marriage is you could have done better, you know. Because you could have done better. I mean, isn't, the very, isn't that the very romance of election? There were so many fish in the sea. And how do you know you couldn't have done better? You don't know. Not for certain, not absolutely. You trust. You make an act of faith. You have faith in God and now you make an act of faith in this person because the Catholic is a faith terminator, a faith machine, a faith ninja. <laughs> it's what you do brilliantly. You become more skilled and more skilled at it, more skilled at doing ridiculous things and throwing your life away in a hundred brilliant ways. That's what we do. A Catholic graveyard with all those Celtic crosses and those crosses on them of varying degrees of tastefulness. What does that say? It says, here are people who wasted their lives for Christ, who were crazy enough to believe his word, who give up their lives, imperfectly, but give up their lives for him and abandon themselves, abandon themselves to magnificent uh, failed efforts to, to love perfectly. Because humanly by nature we will fail. It's grace perfects nature. God has to come into it or we'll make a complete hash of it. No, you're not simply compost for the next generation. Your kids, for whom you made so many sacrifices, for whom you lived, are no less important than you and no more. There's plenty of room in God's house. What better thing can you be told at a table? Well, here I speak as a man because women are more civilised and petite. But what better thing can you be told at a table than eat up, there's plenty. Isn't that a magnificent thing to be told at a table? Dog in. Wire into that. Let at it. Attack. There's plenty more where that came from. Okay? We love to see it eaten. That's the table of God. That's the house of God. I think it was, was it Thoreau, the American writer, who said that his ideal of a house was like a Viking longhouse. You know the way the Vikings had these longhouses where a whole load of families would be in together. Apparently some Indian tribes do it as well in South America and places. And there's this one long fire going the full length of the longhouse and various families have their own places at them. The Viking word for an adolescent was a cinder roller because the teenagers were always just lolling around doing nothing and bored with life. And, and giving out and complaining, lying in the cinders of the fire, talking to each other when they should be doing something useful. Teenagers were cinder rollers. And Thoreau said that was his house. That's the house I'd like to have. Open house. He said, I'd love to have this huge, long table and this huge fire and everyone passing to just come in and, and an endless racket going on and people laughing and talking and eating and drinking. What a magnificent vision. My vision, again, for, for the great marriage house, my vision of it would be a Mr. Badger's house in the wild wood, in the wind and the willows. Do you remember that? And the flitches of bacon hanging from the rafters and the smell of the fry coming from the, the great cast iron frying pan on, on the fire, and so on and so on. I, I mean, for that image of home and safety and all good things, and, and for, for real value, for added value, a good storm brewing up outside. When I come across a ruined house, and, I, and you see them often in the west of Ireland, and I stand at the hearth, 
I'm overcome with melancholy and sadness at the thought of how that was the centre of the world. I think Hugh Leonard has that phrase in his play, Da, about the one single light out in their little cottage in Dawkey. It was the centre of the world. It was the light that was the, the compass by which he oriented his, his journey home in the evening. The sight of that light in the cottage window. That is what you'll do when you marry. You create a world you're like God. Why wouldn't you be? Aren't you made in his image and likeness? You're cut off the old block you can't stop creating. You're creative by your nature. You create a centre of the world. That hearth, that home, that place at which people, in which people are welcome. And I'm saying to you here this evening, if you're getting ready to marry, if you're coming up for marriage, you look at this amazing adventure you are about to undertake. For goodness sake, don't try to do it on your own. This comes from God. It can only be done with God. But if you do it with God, it will be, in the words of Green Day's song, something unpredictable. But it, in the end, it's right. I hope you have the time of your life. Spread your dreams before her. Spread your dreams before him. Take a chance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.